forever. Dog. Just between us. Hey. Just between us. Hey. Hello. I'm Alice Raskin. I'm a writer, mental health advocate, and I've seen Blink 182 live three different times. Hell yeah. I'm Gabe Dunn. I'm a writer, bicon, bisexual icon. Wink, and I'm making a movie. Ooh, tell us about Ooh. it. So Melissa, our esteemed producer, and I are working on my debut feature film. Uh, it's called You and I, You and Me thus far. That is the title. And it's like a low-budget indie, and I wrote it. And it's a T for T, trans for trans romantic drama. And I'm very excited about it. And Melissa's producing it. And you're directing it. And I'm directing it. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Oh, sorry. I, I sorry. I, I don't know. I forgot if I said that or not. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm directing it. So I'm very excited. And I keep Melissa has been very good at being like, this is a good script. Keep your confidence up. You know what yeah. I mean? Like she's a she's quite a cheerleader. I'll say that. So it's fun. It's so exciting. I am excited because it's like a trans for trans, trans guy for trans woman love story. And you better believe there's a sex scene. So I'm <laughs> thrilled. That's just, that's also what everyone brings up who's read it. Like most multiple people who've, brought, who've read it have been like, in that sex scene though. And I'm like, thank you. <laughs> How many pages is the sex scene? Probably like three. Nice. It's, it's, it goes, it goes for a while. <laughs> and like, and like, it's funny, my, my sis straight friend who read it was like, this is hot. And I was like, thanks. <laughs> I, I, what I love to do is transcend expectations. Well, I would hope that your sex scene was hot. I know. What have I been doing all this research for? <laughs> <laughs> this is just between us, a variety show filled with heartfelt advice. Ridiculous games. And brutal honesty. That made Melissa laugh, and I'm so proud of that. <laughs> um, this week, we are going to be talking to Liz Glazer all about her making comedy out of tragedy. Let's just say that so we don't give stuff away. Yeah, it's an incredible, powerful interview, I, I think. One of my favorite guests we've ever had. Like, hands down. <laughs> yeah. I was almost like in the middle of the conversation. I was like, am I in love with her? <laughs> it's so wild because like... You know, we we meet these people and like sometimes it takes people a bit to warm up. Like mm -hmm. within like 10 seconds, I was like, I really like her. Yes, I know. I <laughs> Just know. like her energy. I was like, I, I want her to be my friend. <laughs> right. It's someone you definitely want around. So the interview was was really moving. It's a sad topic, but it's just a moving and really well done, eloquent, funny, poignant interview. And later, we'll be talking all about risk and how much risk each of us is willing to take. Oh, wow. Appropriate. Zero. Oh, my God. I no, feel I'm like kidding. that's not true. That's not true. But first, we have got to answer a listener's question. And you know what that means? Hit it! International question. International question. International question. Jackie, Australia. That's how you probably pronounce that, right? J A Q Jackie. Jackie? Okay. No, I think it's Jackie. Okay. Well, we, I tried. It has a Q in it. It has a Q in it. <laughs> Jackie writes, Dear Allison and Gabe, TLDR, what do you do after you discover your partner's been having an emotional affair? Oh, strap in. 
Oof, this is a tough one. It's a real tough one. They write, I've been following you since your YouTube days in 2015. And yes, I know you're back on YouTube, loving the new videos. And I love listening to your insights. Yesterday, I found out my husband has been having an emotional affair for at least five years. We've been together for 12 years and married for seven. And I always thought we had a great relationship, affectionate, respectful, trusting, and great communication. Oh my God. Yesterday, I was borrowing his laptop because mine is out for repairs at the moment. When I opened it, his email was open on a thread with someone we'll call SJ and not a friend I was aware of. In the open emails, there were flirty innuendo and he wrote that he loved her. I've never snooped through his stuff before and never would have thought to go through his emails if this hadn't already been open. After seeing this, though, I was shocked. So I searched his mail for her name and found 80 email conversations going back two years. I opened the earliest one to see how things started and discovered that wasn't the beginning of the conversation. It read like they had already known each other and were continuing a conversation from another platform. I didn't read all the emails, but I did dip into a few of the threads to get a better sense of the relationship. When he got home, I asked him who SJ was and he answered, oh, the nurse down in Tassie with the tone that implied I should know who it was. When he didn't elaborate, I told him about the emails that I'd seen, that he said he loved her, that there was sexual flirting that had been going on for years. His response at first was strange, to me at least. He sounded almost academic when he talked about it, saying, oh, it was just a fantasy, it was never anything physical. But to me, the way they wrote to each other didn't sound like a fantasy. She'd shared her phone number as well, and it looked like they had some phone conversations. They tried to make a time to see each other. She lives in another state, about an hour's flight from us. And they'd also been sending photos to each other. I had been expecting the conversation to end with him telling me that he wanted to leave me for her, but that he just hadn't gotten the guts to tell me. Mm -hmm. Instead, he kept downplaying his relationship with her. I tried to get more details from him, but he was very vague. What he did tell me was that he met her through a pen pal service he signed up for in 2014 when I happened to be on a trip without him. And they were friendly for a while before things got more intimate slash romantic. It was romantic from at least 2018, maybe earlier. He insisted that they'd never seen each other in person, but there was one email I saw where he talked about the smell of her perfume and her hair, which made it sound like they'd met in the past. Uh. I asked him why he developed this relationship. Was there a need that wasn't being met in our relationship? But he insisted that there wasn't, saying he didn't understand why he'd done it and would get therapy to sort it out. Mm. I also wondered why he didn't feel safe about talking to me about this. Our relationship has been monogamous, but we've talked about opening things up and have both been open to having other partners should the desire and opportunity arise. The understanding was always that we communicate about it, though. On my side, I told him that I was thinking about signing up for an app even before doing anything. So I don't understand how he could have built this relationship over years without saying anything. Discovering not only the affair, but that it's been going on for years was a huge blow to my trust and the way he approached the conversation. Not giving detail, not sharing things openly, just made it harder to trust him. I told him that I didn't know I would be able to trust him again and that I didn't know if our relationship could come back from this. And that seemed to be the first time when he took things seriously. After that, he got emotional, saying he'd messed up and didn't know why, saying that I meant everything to him, that he would do whatever it took to build Mm. my trust, etc. Now I just don't know what to do. 
All the advice I found on emotional affairs seems to focus on rebuilding the relationship, but I'm not sure if I want to. Mm. Part of me feels like maybe I'm making too big a deal out of it. If he gets therapy and works on his communication, maybe things could be improved. It's been 12 years. Is this a big enough reason to end it? Yes. Another part of me feels like our trust has been irrevocably broken. I don't want to be the wife who's checking his phone every day, mostly because it's not healthy for me, but also because I know he can just create a new email account or get another phone to keep communicating with her slash anyone else he develops a relationship with. I also don't think it would help. I just don't see how I can trust him again. I know part of trusting is choosing to trust someone. Shout out to Allison's recent emotional support lady email on this. Hmm. But how can I choose to trust someone who has proven to be untrustworthy? Ultimately, it feels like if I stay, I'm accepting that this is a type of relationship I deserve. It's just so strange because so much of our 12 years together have been wonderful. It's why we've been together for that long, why we moved in together and why we got married. And I don't feel like anything changed in the last five plus years when he was talking to this woman. After our conversation last night, I almost feel like he was experiencing the two relationships in parallel. One had no impact on the other. But I can't help feeling that those years have been a lie. Anyway, I'm sorry this email has gone so long. I'm not expecting advice on whether I should stay or go, but would appreciate any insight you have into how I could be thinking about this. Things feel very messy and uncertain at the moment. Thanks, Jackie. I think that you're right and that this person has completely, completely compartmentalized these two situations. And I think that in order for someone to be able to do that, they don't respect you. Like, I don't think the last five years have been a lie, but I don't think that that he respects you or thinks highly enough of you to engage with you as a fellow human being with depth. Like he doesn't, it's, it's about what he wants and it's about his selfishness. And if you're okay with that, then you're okay with that. And there's no judgment here, but this is a person who will put himself over everyone else at any given chance and opportunity. And I also think that there's, there's a, a, a manipulation in appearing like, oh, this isn't a big deal. This isn't a big deal. Playing that card until you said you were leaving and then playing another card. And I'm not saying that he's maybe wasn't sincere, but I think it struck me as someone who is like, okay, I got to play a different card now in order to win. Like he just sort of wants to be in control at all times. And whether that means controlling you by giving you the type of relationship that he thinks you want in order to keep you around, then responding in a way, in ways that he thinks can sort of play you that aren't authentic. And then similarly with this other woman. So I think this is a person who wants what he wants and that's fine, but you don't have to be a part of it. And I can see how a lot of the advice online would be, well, how do you rebuild trust? But like, that's not your responsibility if you don't feel like you want to do it. This is a big, anything is a big enough reason to leave. There's no, that people fall into the sunk cost fallacy of like, but it's been 12 years. Like, how could I possibly walk away? And it's like, you can walk away whenever if you feel like you want to walk away. Yeah, I mean, this is a really complicated situation. And I guess the first thing I want to say is like, you don't need to figure out what you want to do right now. Like you found out yesterday when you sent this email, like you're probably going to fluctuate a lot in your reactions. Like I'm sure there will be moments where it's like, I never want to see him again. 
there'll be moments where I can't imagine my life without him. Like, like I wouldn't necessarily like put the burden on yourself to make such a big life decision right away. Like give yourself a couple of weeks to like really take this in, think about it, see his reaction. But I also think that the thing I really don't like about this, I don't like so many things about this. <laughs> I don't like his response. That's what I'm saying. I think that there is a difference between when you brought him this person up and he immediately confessed and told you the truth and told you everything. I think when that happens, there is a better chance of regaining trust because everything's on the table. They've told you everything and now let's move forward. But if someone, it remains cagey, even after you found something out and you're having to pull things out of them, the story changes, yada, yada. Their response to it changes. This isn't a big deal to, I messed up, I messed up, I'm so sorry. Right, like then that's the kind of thing where I think the rebuilding of trust is even gonna be even harder. When I'm talking about respect, I'm saying that he doesn't see her as a as a full person because he's he's seeing her as a chess piece he has to play. He's seeing her as like, okay, so first I'll just say that it's not a big deal. Then I'll then based on her reaction, I'll act like, oh my God, I messed up. I'm the worst. I'm I'll beat myself up and flagellate myself. Like, I don't know if I'm explaining it correctly, but it's this thing where he's like, instead of saying, I'm so sorry, how do you feel or like caring about that? He's like, how do I fix this chess piece? Like, how do I play this chess piece? Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, the thing is, it's like there are some people that have the capacity to have a double life, which yeah. I think is basically what he had is a double life. Right. And there are other people that do not have that capacity. Right. And a question you're going to have to ask yourself is, are you able to be with someone who has the capacity to do something like that? Right. That's not a question I can answer for you, but I think it kind of gets to the heart of a lot of things in a way. Mm -hmm. At any point, he could have had a discussion with her. If he viewed her as a person, he could have sat her down and had a discussion with her. But he views her as an object he owns and he wants to own both objects. I don't know. I don't think that people like think that way, though. I don't think he thinks that way. I think he just in his brain is like, I have my wonderful wife. And then I also have this fun thing that I do on the side that's not going to impact anything because nobody knows about it. And I just do it on my spare time. Like, it's like, mm -hmm. I'm going to have my cake and eat it too. Versus like him, like, think, I don't think they I don't think people think about it in in such terms, you know, so then when you say to them, you don't respect me at all. They'll be like, of course I respect you because yeah. they're not thinking about it in that way. But I also think that like in terms of like looking up emotional cheating and all of these things, like, yes, like doing that stuff can be helpful. Like if that's what you decide that you want to do, but like you get to carve your own path here. Like mm -hmm. there, there's no one that's going to say like, okay, this, this relationship you can't recover from. And, and once you cross this line, you can't recover from it. But if you cross, but if you're here, then you can like every line in a relationship on whether or not it's quote unquote salvageable is only kind of determined between the two people. Mm -hmm. And so I think that there is this idea of like, okay, but this person had an emotional affair for seven years and they stayed together. So if mine was for five years and I mm -hmm. should be like, that's not how, you know, like, I think there is like this desire to like, look for guidance in other situations of what other people have come back from. There are relationships that have ended over a one night stand and exactly. then relationships that have continued after a 20 year affair. It's really up to you and what kind of life you want, what kind of energy you want to put into this, mm -hmm. like what 
you think is even possible, like knowing yourself, like it seems like maybe you are someone who like would have a hard time letting this go. Um, where like, even if like he did everything right, you would still feel compelled to check his phone 10 years from now, which like, I can't blame you for, you right. know? And so I think like taking the pressure off of yourself that there's a right answer here. And instead just like, giving some time for this news to settle, giving some time to figure out what you want, feeling about examining not the relationship that you had. I don't think you need to like take away what yeah. you had with this person. I don't think those 12 years were a lie I, or the, even those five years. I think he loves you. I think the question is, do I want to move forward with this person now knowing what I know? And that's, kind of it <laughs> in a weird way. It's not like, but the relationship was so good or it wasn't real or what it's like in from this moment forward, what do I want from now on? And I mean, it sounds like from the email, you feel guilty about not wanting to continue and you don't have to feel guilty about that. You're allowed to do, you can handle this however you want. The only person that you owe anything to is yourself. Yeah. And 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 going after and moving forward in a way that is honoring yourself instead of being impacted by other people's opinions or preferences or experiences. I think it's all about himself and about control and about like I almost feel like presenting who he is to different people in order to like win love or people please or something. It's like, I don't know. It makes me I it makes me like very uncomfortable because it makes me think of like, how can you know the person? Why stay if I don't know, I don't know, whatever, I can't get into this man's head or diagnose him. But it's like, you have to be able to see your partner as a fully formed, nuanced, complex person, you can't just present to them the best side of you, because then it's like your relationship is not real. Like he's like, he maybe they had such a good relationship because he just, I don't know, is like a weirdo, is like a, a monster in a human skin suit trying to behave like a person. I don't know. But it just like creeps me out. I think it's just like, now that I know the situation, what do I want to do? Yeah, I guess just being honest about what the situation is. I don't know. It's just, I feel very creeped out by this whole email. It's it's really sad. And like, but I think response, a lot of people do this. I think I a lot of people compartmentalize. And I don't necessarily think it is a reflection necessarily of your marriage. I think it's a reflection of, of his capacity and his personality. And what you want to do moving forward. Yeah. Because you discussed being open and he didn't, he wasn't going to give you the same grace. Do you know what I mean? Like it's so, I don't know. It just feels very controlling. Okay. I'm done. I just feel creeped out. Well, we're sending you so much love and I don't know if I don't know if anyone can help right now, but we're here and, and we support you, whatever you decide. Yeah, we love you. And if you want to submit your international question, you can send it to just between us pod at gmail.com. That's just between us pod at gmail.com. Up next, we've got a great interview with our highly esteemed guest, Liz Glazer. So stay tuned. Back to just between us. It's time for the juiciest, most scandalous, most controversial segment known to all of podcasting. Tough questions. 
This week on the show, we have Liz Glazer, a comedian celebrating her 10th year of stand-up comedy with her debut comedy LP, A Very Particular Experience, which is about grief, stillbirth, and inherited trauma, which is what we're going to talk about. Hi, Liz. Hi, Gabe. Hi, Allison. It's so nice to be here. Thank you for coming on the show as a comedian to talk about a serious topic. (laughs) Oh, for sure. That's my pleasure. Uh, (laughs) Listen, if somebody doesn't like stillbirth comedy, what are you even doing with your life? (laughs) Oh, my God. But I think that, like, Gabe and I have also, since we were children, really Mm -hmm. used humor as a coping mechanism. Yeah. I mean, same. And, you know, like, I... I always like I think I got into comedy because I wanted to talk about whatever was like earnestly and honestly going on in my life. And so there have been times as a comedian when I'm like, okay, cool. Like when my when my wife was pregnant, as an example of this, like before the stillbirth, I had all of these my wife is pregnant jokes. And that was what I was planning to record as my first album. And then we had the stillbirth. And so That was an interesting moment because I got into comedy. I was teaching law for seven years when I did comedy for the first time. And like the thing that appealed to me about it wasn't so much like the getting laughs or whatever. I mean, obviously that's great and validating and makes me feel like a good person and comedian and connected and whatever. But it wasn't that that was like driving it for me. It was more that like as a law professor, if I went into class and something was going on for me personally, it would have been inappropriate for me to bring in what was going on for me personally into property class, right? (laughs) Unless it has some direct connection to property class. Meanwhile, as a comedian, I'm like, the only thing that I need to start with is what's true for me right now. Like, yeah, you got to make it funny, obviously. But like, the starting point, there's not like material that you have to cover or like a bar exam or whatever. Anyway, so because of that, I think when all of this happened, obviously it was super tragic, it was super sad and shocking and whatever. But like, I knew pretty soon after it happened that I wanted to somehow incorporate it into my work. Mm-hmm. And can you kind of take us through the, the journey yeah. of that? Because I feel like mm-hmm. it's one of those things we've all heard happen, but like, Mm -hmm. The logistics of it are still like kind of confusing. You know, as much as it was healing for me, the reason that I wanted to do it as a publicly consumable piece of art is because stillbirths are really prevalent in the United States specifically. There's 24,000 stillbirths a year. One in 160 pregnancies ends in stillbirth. One in four pregnancies in the U.S. every year ends in some kind of loss. And I imagine that everybody knows somebody who happened upon some of this in some way, unfortunately, but it's not talked about really. And certainly not in a humorous way. You know, I mean, I could imagine somebody making truly distasteful jokes about it, but like, I wasn't interested in that. I've, I've always been like a very kind of vulnerability forward comedian for better or worse. And so I trusted myself as a narrator of the experience as a result of that. But basically what happened was my wife was having, and every, every stillbirth story is different, by the way which is maddening because I, I get the human desire to be like, okay, I want to know what happens to them so that I can't, like, I won't replicate it. So mm-hmm. I like to tell what happened to us because sure, if these circumstances should, God forbid, befall someone, you've heard about it. And so to the extent it's applicable, great. But like 
when we were in a bereavement group, we heard all kinds of different stories that resulted in stillbirths because our bereavement group was 100% of the people in it had stillbirths. Mm -hmm. And so the definition of a stillbirth, first of all, is anything that's past 22 weeks of a pregnancy. So it's not full term. Full term is 37 weeks technically, but it's like a viable pregnancy um, in the sense, I think a viable pregnancy actually means something else, but like where if the baby was birthed at 22 weeks, it wouldn't be great, but it would be salvageable mm-hmm. mm. to to have this become like a life in the world, like right. in the NICU, et cetera. And I don't mean that distinction as like something that's necessarily like important because, I, and by that, I mean that like miscarriages are also really bad. Mm -hmm. And I'm not here saying like, listen, this is just about stillbirths, but like miscarriages, you know, don't matter. It all matters and it's all tragic and terrible. And I think the grief associated with it is like confusing because it's all theoretical. It's like this abstract loss of hope. You never knew this person. And so, so much of the album, you know, I do jokes about other griefs that I've experienced because I wanted to have them as points of contrast and comparison because, for example, it was very tragic when we lost my dad at 73. But when I think about my dad, I actually have memories of my dad as an alive person. You know, oh, he would have loved it here, which probably never was true because he always wanted to leave everywhere. But like, you know, whatever <laughs> that that you could have an experience. And even like right. we lost our cat Mona, who I bring up also in the in the album. And there too, like she was a cat, but like we knew her. It was like, oh, this is so Mona. Whereas like, we don't have a, this is so Leo, our daughter, right? And that's really sad, but it is also confusing as as an existential matter because then it's like, oh, do I deserve to be grieving this loss? I think that's a part of it, especially, you know, not that pregnancy only happens to women, but for the vast majority of pregnant people are women. And I think that a female component psychologically can be is it okay for me to take up this space? And if mm. I'm grieving, is it okay for me to like grieve something that people are like, oh, you should be fine. Mm-hmm. And so because of all those reasons, I wanted to do the album. But just to get back to the logistics, of, as you've asked, so Karen, my wife, who was the pregnant party in our relationship, was having a totally fine pregnancy. Everything was perfect, perfect, perfect. And then she had one high blood pressure reading that then was like undone by another normal blood pressure reading. She then had a urine test that had high levels of protein. So they wanted to do a 24-hour urine test, which is like this involved thing where you have to like collect your urine over a 24-hour period and then like bring it to the doctor's office to then test for protein levels. And it turned out that her protein levels on that test were so high, but we didn't get the test back until after she delivered Leo, our, our stillborn daughter. And basically the diagnosis of preeclampsia, which was what she had, is the conjunction of high blood pressure, high protein content in your urine, and bloating. And Mm. all three of those can be signs of pregnancy. Mm. And so it's this interesting thing where it's like a kind of dosage level, like your blood pressure is higher. Your protein level in your urine is higher. You are more bloated. And so it's a question of, the conjunction of all three of those, the severity of one or all three of those that results in this diagnosis of preeclampsia, which then, you know, triggers doctors to have you monitored more closely. Um, then you become a high risk patient. Then they might you put you on drugs like blood thinners or, or and or high blood pressure lesseners. But we didn't know that Karen wasn't high risk. I would say that if I had any friend who was pregnant, 
literally at all, I would be like, just find a way to be high risk. And I say that as a person recovering from trauma, a very acute trauma that wasn't that long ago. But the differences between Karen's pregnancy with Leo and Karen's pregnancy with Eloise, who was our daughter who was born a month ago, were truly night and day in the sense that like we basically moved into the doctor's office. Like there was, I mean, we were worried every single day, obviously, Mm -hmm. maybe, but also like we were so monitored. And yes, it gave us peace of mind, but it was also like, there's so much about pregnancy that's maddening because you're like, this person is inside of me, but I don't know how they're doing, Mm -hmm. you know? And like Karen's placenta, the first time was what they call an anterior placenta, which is where the placenta um, is like closer to the front of your like stomach area. Mm -hmm. And so kick counts, which are really important to determine that your baby's alive, basically, because you can't tell a heartbeat unless you have a Doppler at home, which was a level of anxious that like even we didn't get to, but we do have friends who had a Doppler at home. So her first pregnancy, we never felt like kicks because the placenta was anterior. Whereas if you have a posterior placenta, which we did have the second time, you can't control that, Mm -hmm. I think, obviously. But I think with like more monitoring, and it's like really, it's sad to say this, you know, but I say it not, I don't know, it's like, we can't undo the past. But I guess like getting pregnant, kind of soon after the fact, we were very aware of the past and ways that we wanted this pregnancy to be different, obviously. Anyway, that's kind of the the place that I'm coming from. So I hope that is helpful and informative. No, it's super informative because you never hear anything about the specifics of pregnancy, really. Like yep. even with, I just kept thinking about all of this um, Roe v. Wade stuff. And it's like, yep. you're the way you're talking about it is so medical and so mm-hmm. terrifying. And yeah. people just like assume from movies or from whatever that it's like a baby popped out and everything was totally fine. And like sure. the way that you're talking about it is like, so many checks, so many medical mm-hmm. scenarios that could go wrong. And like, yeah. do you find that people are just not prepared for what could go wrong? Well, maybe. And I think that like, there's, you know, a good bit of, I don't know, like a societal desire to have pregnancy be like fun and exciting and joyous. And honestly, you know, I thought a lot about that for our second pregnancy, because I'm like, well, I, I'm grateful in a way that I'm aware of all of these risks, but like, to what extent is that hampering my enjoyment of this process? And, you know, I mean, to a certain degree, it's like, what can you do, right? You, you actually have evidence in your, for my own life that I could point to of like, well, this could go wrong, mm-hmm. you know, and, and both Karen and I were thinking about that constantly. And I don't know. I mean, my sense, I really like the truth. Right. You know, and so I'm just like, it's, I think that, I don't know, like if there's ways that it's possible to like get into a category of pregnancy where someone is, because if, and the reason I say it's, it's like really important to get into the category of high risk is because then your insurance covers more. Uh-huh. And so you have to reach that barrier in order to like get certain protection. And it's like, really wild and like totally insane because like, first of all, there's a lot of racism in terms of pregnancy loss and maternal Mm -hmm. loss during pregnancy. I mean, we're white people and this happened to us, but I say it on the album and I think it really bears mentioning that like, this is a lot of times a problem for black women. Mm -hmm. And like, I don't think that that's irrelevant. You know, I also think that you mentioned Gabriel V. Wade and to my understanding, some of the reason, and maybe a lot of the reason, I don't know the extent to which this is true, but 
it seems to me, based on what I've read in like, you know, law review articles and such, that part of the reason there's so much pregnancy loss is because anti-abortion activists won't allow certain studies to happen that would curb stillbirth and miscarriage because they may also heighten the extent to which people are going to have abortions. And I mean, it's total BS, you know, so I just would rather go into anything knowing risks Mm -hmm. so that I can assess risks. And I think the extent to which like there's less talk of this type of stuff in pregnancy is really because we want to like create this sunshine and rainbows kind of, you know, way that pregnancy can be. But I wouldn't want that in the absence of knowing true risk. Mm -hmm. Like it's, first of all, we had all of that knowledge and also we're nostalgic for the pregnancy that just was. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. it is also possible, I guess, you know, now I'm thinking about this and observing it about my recent life that like, we knew all about that risk. And also we still had fun during our pregnancy. Mm-hmm. Well, congratulations on your daughter. Oh, thanks. Thank you. And so with Leo, did Karen go into delivery already knowing that Leo had passed or no. she had to go through the whole labor and then find out? Correct. I mean, oh my God. So, and I've heard it like all kinds of ways yeah. where people know they're delivering a dead baby. And I think that that could be traumatic in a different way. I think the saving grace for the delivery itself was how quick it was, which it was like, I'm not even kidding, like maybe 10 minutes. Wow. Yeah, they call it a bat out of hell labor. It's super scary. I mean, beyond, Mm -hmm. but it's so quick. Your body is expelling the baby because when you have preeclampsia, you have to stop being pregnant because the cure to preeclampsia is the end of a pregnancy. Got it. And so in, yeah, so basically Karen awoke with like pretty severe contraction pain that we didn't know was contraction pain at around like one something in the morning and then was able to sleep. So she was like, oh, I guess it's fine. I mean, we were 33 weeks and six days. So like we weren't thinking that this is going to be labor. And then she delivered like, full delivered at 717 in the morning. So that is a very quick process. Um, And once we were at the hospital, she was like, I need to deliver. Now we delivered in triage for Leo. So it was very quick. And completely traumatic. Yes. What is it like to go through that experience as a couple, you know, Mm -hmm. because of like the difference of like, you know, like, her body also going through the trauma yeah. of that. And um, that must yeah. be so scary for you about sure. potentially, I would think, losing her too. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think in that moment, you know, I'm a very worried, anxious person. And I think like sometimes moments of actual emergency are opportunities for me to show up as like my best self mm. because it's kind of like, oh, suddenly the world outside matches like the sirens going off in my head at all times. So I think in that moment, I just knew that I needed to keep it together for Karen. And so, you know, medically what happened right after, and anybody who's listening to this, who's like, you know, following the medical with knowledge would know that like you need to have um, a magnesium drip, which I guess is like a super awful, it's an IV that takes 24 hours and magnesium is inserted into you, but I guess it makes you really nauseated. 
And it like Karen still looks back at that moment. She's like, yeah, obviously the moment of like knowing that Leo wasn't alive was like horrible. And that magnesium drip was also super awful. Yeah. But it's in order to get your blood pressure down. And I guess like that's probably part of the reason that it makes you as nauseated as it does. I don't know. I'm not a doctor, but like I say all of that because like I knew in that moment and maybe naively, Mm -hmm. but I thought in that moment, like, okay, well, we're in the hospital. She's on this drip that's intended to like make all of the symptoms that are really emergent and terrifying lesson. So she's going to be okay. Mm -hmm. And again, maybe there's stuff I didn't know about that, but like she definitely was very, very highly watched in that moment. And again, does that always matter? Probably not. But I suppose in that moment, it like allayed some of my fear. What do you do emotionally as a as a couple afterwards where one person has the physical yeah. experience and one doesn't? Mm-hmm. But also just as a couple, like for your relationship? Yeah, I think like, I mean, we went to a bereavement group. We went to couples therapy. We just availed ourselves of a lot of like help and support because, you know, I think like, I think there are pretty high divorce rates for people who've gone through this. That's my understanding. But like the the bereavement group that we went to, of course, their sample size is much smaller, but they were like, well, we've had, I think they've had like one divorce, like in the existence of the bereavement group that's been like 11 years or something. Wow. Yeah. So it was good. It's called Pockets of Light. I think it's a local thing for New Jersey where we live, but like they're great. And just in terms of like our relationship, I think I was aware and continue to be aware that my role in the pregnancy is, I guess, like secondary is the word that comes to mind, not in a bad way, but just in a way of like, my job is to be supportive of Karen in and around the topic of pregnancy, you know, because in our relationship, we're both women. And so theoretically, either of us could have been the pregnant Mm -hmm. party. Like I do stand up and Karen's a rabbi, but I think of Karen and pregnancy the way that like I view stand up comedy. Like if there is stand up comedy happening and it's a show that I really want to do, I will navigate my way towards that experience. And I think for rearing and bearing children, that has always been Karen. Mm. And so, like, I love kids and I'm perfectly thrilled to be a parent. And also it was not something that I was going to navigate towards myself. And I always knew that about myself. So, you know, I think that like for the pregnancy, I, I just wanted to be supportive. Mm -hmm. How did you decide to try to have another kid so soon? I think some of it was practical because you know, Karen is 41. And so she wanted to have a child and the time is like limited and relevant for that. And so I think that that factored in and also just like, you know, we definitely like took time to grieve and also are both aware that like grief is not linear and like, it's not like at any time we're going to be over it. But I think that she wanted to have a child very much and it was painful also in light of losing Leo. And also she wanted to have a child. And also I think like, so she and her rabbinate and in her work, like delivered her Yom Kippur sermon on the topic of what had happened to us. And I did the album. And I feel like 
we wanted to both like process in a way like I think a sermon for her was like a big deal and also this album for me was a big deal and the sermon for me was a big deal and the album for her was a big deal and so I think like we felt we were sort of as processed as we were gonna get Mm -hmm. and we still wanted to have a kid do you feel like it's because too that there was like energy that now had no place to go in terms of having a kid yeah like the expectation of being a parent and the the preparation you had done. Yeah, I think, I don't know if, if it's exactly that maybe, but like she really wanted to be a mom, Mm -hmm. you know? So it's like, I mean, we really wanted to have attention paid in our works respectively to Leo specifically, Mm -hmm. because I think that there is this narrative around stillbirth that it's like, oh, well, we didn't have this baby, but we had another one, so everything's okay. And we really didn't want to like have that be the way that we were putting out the story, you know, because we both knew we would put out the story in some way. So I think once we had done that, it was kind of like, right, and we still want a kid. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think what comes up for me is like, not so much an energy, but but like anticipating a new life stage mm-hmm. like that you're you know when you become a parent your life is completely different you're in a different yeah. stage of life and so being like having prepared for that stage and then it not yeah. happening is a is a grief within itself yeah that's yeah that's probably true i mean you know we're nervous jews and as nervous jews we have the superstition for better or worse that like you don't like do up the room or buy the stuff or whatever like before the baby arrives and so we didn't have that specifically like i think you know and not that like oh well we already have a room so <laughs> might as well have a baby and i don't mean that that's like you know it's not as simplistic as that but yeah i imagine you're correct that like our anticipations were in furtherance of having a child and then we didn't. So now what are we going to do? Right. And that is energy. Um, and it is a planning for a next stage of life. And so, yeah, I think that that's true. And also it's kind of like, I mean, I don't mean to reduce it to this way, but like, because I said that having kids is like Karen stand up. Like if I was doing a show and like something and I bombed, it's not like I'm not going to do another show, mm-hmm. right? Because my mm-hmm. my purpose in the world, as I understand it, is to do this. Mm-hmm. And I think like Karen's purpose in the world, you know, among others, like she has a job also, but like a really big one for her has been starting a family with children. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It's also like we were grieving Leo, but it was also that we still wanted to have a kid. Like we got mm-hmm. into this to have an alive kid. Mm -hmm. Right. And like, it's not that we don't accept Leo as she is, which was not alive when we met her. And our desire has been to honor her memory in whatever way we can. And also, we wanted to raise and want to raise a child. Mm -hmm. When did you first write a joke about it? I mean, it was pretty immediate because funny things happened in the hospital. And so like the start of this hour was because a funny thing happened and then another funny thing happened and then another funny thing happened. And I was like, I guess I have to write this down. And so I had this joke file entitled way too soon. 
And that was the start of the hour. Way too soon. And you talked at the beginning sort of about being thoughtful about the types of jokes that you told about it. And you kind of differentiate between like what you view as like kind of a tasteless joke about this experience versus like a vulnerable joke about it? Yeah, sure. I mean, I think, I don't know that I have specific examples about a tasteless joke. You know, like I think, and and I find it funny in the context in which it was told to me, but like, I don't remember what was the setup for this, but I was on the phone with a friend who's a comedian and, you know, it was something about like, well, you guys can't keep a baby alive or something like that. And I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> and, it, and it was something like, it, this was like, you know, after the stillbirth and um, before we had a child who mm-hmm. I'm going to knock on wood that we keep her alive. I'm Jewish, but I hedge my bets. Mm-hmm. And so I, yeah, like I guess that that would be some kind of a tasteless joke or in the neighborhood of tasteless jokes. Like, yeah everything that I joked about really emerged from the things that actually happened to me and to us. Right. Mm -hmm. And so that I think was like the, the element of it that was taste, I don't know, present. I'm not going to say full. (laughs) (laughs) Well, just like that, you said that even that funny things were happening in the hospital Mm -hmm. in the immediate aftermath. It's like, Sometimes when these horrible things happen to us, we like expect the world to sort of stop or for people yeah. to always be on their best behavior or, for yeah. th- you know, but then it's like, nope, like you're still going to have like a, a weird interaction with a nurse or like mm-hmm. you might still like get in a car accident on the way home, like, like yeah. the expansiveness sure. of life in these moments. Yeah, I think that's right. And there were also some jokes that, you know, that didn't make it to the album. I'm making a documentary about the making of this album because I have video footage from the hour that was the album, but also I went on stage three weeks after the stillbirth and just basically did my way too soon jokes. And some of those jokes like didn't make it a year later, but I have them, you know, on tape. And, and so that's like a project of its own, but like what you were saying about nurses, like we had a nurse who after Leo's stillbirth, you know, she came into the room and she was like, I just want to say like, she's so beautiful. She's perfect. Like she's really perfect. And it was so confusing because I kind of like, she was so convincing that I was like, should we tell her? Like, it was so odd because I'm like, don't ask this nurse if your butt looks fat in a pair of jeans because she's not going to tell you that your butt is dead. You know, like it was so, but it's like, it's not that she as a nurse was wrong. Like everybody's just operating from hopefully their best intentions, but Mm -hmm. that's like certainly what I assumed of it. But it was just like a level of ridiculousness that attends tragedy, Mm -hmm. you know? And I think that the moment of shock and grief and trauma caused at least me and maybe others in a moment like that to just notice some of the absurdity. Yeah. Yeah. How was it received when you did your way too soon jokes? I mean, that, well, first of all, it was like, it was like a small show and, you know, it, it wasn't, whatever, but well. Uh, So (laughs) yeah, I mean, it was like definitely a triumph of sorts, like artistically in that moment, at least to a degree. I mean, I'm not saying like, oh my God, I killed, you know, or whatever. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I'm like thinking like of that's maybe a tasteless pun in the context of a stillbirth set. But yeah, like it did go over well. And also it wasn't as simple as maybe other 
types of like preparing for an album type of sets where it's like, okay, listen back, what worked, what didn't. Like it was more about constructing a narrative that really said what I wanted to say and was like deserving of existing as an hour in memory of our stillborn daughter. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, And so some of the jokes that I didn't put on the album, it's not like I didn't put them on because like they weren't good enough or it was just like, it wasn't supportive of the overall point I wanted to make. Mm -hmm. Right. We're going to take a quick break, but stick around. And we're back. I feel like something we love to do as a society is judge other people's grief process Mm -hmm. and that you're either grieving correctly or incorrectly. And and I, I wonder, did you experience any of that with people not understanding how you could joke about this or make an album about this? Yes. You know, I, some of it has come from people who have experienced stillbirth and they're like, well, I didn't talk about it at all for 10 years. I I mean, that happened like, I think three times that I had like people in that camp, which I found interesting because, you know, I can appreciate that like some of the judging of other people's grief comes from the outside and some of it comes from, well, this happened to me and I somehow shut my mouth for 10 years. And I'm like, okay, cool. I don't know. Right. Exactly. Like, I don't know that that's like a model and I'm not here saying, why didn't you do a comedy album about it? Mm -hmm. You know? So it's like interesting to me that you're saying, why did you? I also think like, I think that there's this assumption and conflation of like comedy with insults or something right Mm. like where it's like you're making comedy so then you're making fun of something whereas I really reject that conflation like I think that there it's possible to laugh and not be insulting you know like I grew up I, I definitely I hate like when comedians insult other people and that's like where they derive their humor because for me I always felt left out as a kid Mm -hmm. and like, you know, too shy or too nerdy or too different or whatever it was. And comedy has always been a way for me of like including people. And I think that, you know, it makes sense given some comedy that exists that maybe people would assume, oh, you're joking, therefore you're being mean, Right. right? But it's possible to joke and to not be mean. And so assuming... And I'm not saying like that the people who are joking and are mean shouldn't be able to say what they want to say, say whatever. But I think for my own artistic process in coming up with jokes around a sensitive topic, I did encounter people who are like, well, you can't joke about that. And I'm like, yeah, but did you listen to the joke? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then maybe, you know, maybe it doesn't work for you. Okay, fine. Mm -hmm. But it's like to say that there are some topics that are off limits as people sometimes do about jokes, you know, um, I think is really limiting as a a way of like processing feelings and grief, because like essentially you're telling grieving people that this avenue to their healing is unavailable to them. Right. And that somehow because a trauma happened, they unfortunately have to be sad the rest of their lives. And I just think that that's mean, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> I'm like, yeah. why? Yeah. And I also think there's this idea that if you make a joke about something, it either means you don't care about it or you're yeah. trying to push it away from you. Yeah. Yeah. Where I don't find that to be true at all. I Same. think a lot of times it's how I actively process mm-hmm. the pain or the mm-hmm. experience or yeah. whatever it is. Yeah, I I agree and me too. And I think that the jokes that I put together for this album 
are about that. Like they're literally jokes about here was a moment where we were all, where we were all sad and then we laughed. And mm-hmm. I made this album because I wondered in that moment, as did Karen, are we ever going to be able to laugh again? Mm-hmm. And I don't mean it like as a comedian, am I going to be able to do my job again? Right. I mean, certainly, you know, that was like part of my anxiety because my anxiety is all encompassing, mm-hmm. but I wouldn't say that it was the nub of it. The nub mm-hmm. of the anxiety was like, does this moment of trauma mean that joy is over for us? Yeah. Right. Uh, I, I've really been liking thinking about joy as like a muscle too mm-hmm. that totally like, and and really trying to because I also run very anxious and sure and all of those things and and really like celebrating that despite everything I still have a capacity to feel joy mm-hmm. you know and I yeah. have to imagine that like the first time you felt joy after this was like such a relief that your body still knew how to do that yes that's exactly right and also it was very quick to then feeling guilty about the fact that we were feeling joy. Right. Of course. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like what are your plans moving forward in terms of like explaining things to your daughter about Mm -hmm. her sister and like, is is Leo going to always be a part of of the narrative or something you're going to introduce when she's a bit older? Have you talked through that? We have talked through it. I don't know that we like have a hundred percent of a answer but it's a really good question. And it's definitely something that's very relevant to us. Like now she's a month old. She, you know, she's, I mean, she's fully talking and walking, but no, like, um, she's very, (laughs) (laughs) right. Um, she's an adult and, uh, but yeah, like I think both of us run very like honest and desirous of being honest And also then there's the other piece, which is like, and how do you talk to children such that they don't like exist in a space where they know too much and it's like weird and uncomfortable for them. Mm -hmm. So I don't know that we have like an answer. Um, My wife is a huge reader. I am a big like, you know, Googler and I'll listen to a lot of books and podcasts about like any question that I have. So I anticipate like diving into a lot of research collectively as a couple uh, in order to figure out like what the best way is that we actually think is like regular for us, which is to say we're not denying what happened. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think that with a lot of couples that go through something like this, it's like either an opportunity to grow closer together or move further apart. And do you feel like this brought you guys weirdly closer together? Yeah, I do. I mean, it wasn't something that I think like we needed to feel right. like we right, were pretty course. close. But but like now that it's happened, like there is a kind of resiliency that we believe our relationship to have that maybe we wouldn't have known about prior. I don't know. Yeah, we're very big here on not romanticizing tragedy or being like, well, I'm glad this bad thing happened because it needed to. Like Allison and I both are very pragmatic in that way where we're sort of like, Mm -hmm. no, this like you didn't get your legs bit off by a shark so that you could like inspire hundreds of people. Like it's just, you don't have, you can just be at home pissed about that. You don't have to like. (laughs) Right, right. Well, yeah, no. And I, I think about that a lot because it's like at no point am I saying I'm glad or grateful that mm-hmm. we had a stillbirth. I know, but you're expected to. Right. And also, you know, 
it happened and we arguably grew closer and we made work and art from it. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like, so yeah. But I think like both of us really, I mean, we talk openly about this, but just like try to allow for the multiplicity of feelings in a moment and in a life. And so it can be all of these feelings and things like everything can be Mm -hmm. right. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I think I think like maybe a heightened awareness of that, maybe more empathy, mm-hmm. you know, for people who experience loss of all kinds. Like one thing, maybe this is particular to me, but like I used to have the kind of OCD where if I talked about death, I was like on a countdown to wash my hands mm-hmm. in order to wash mm-hmm. my hands of the topic of death. Mm-hmm. And sometimes this would happen in school where the teacher didn't know my OCD rules. And so she would say something about dying and I couldn't just like go out to the bathroom because I had just been or whatever it might've been. So I had to blow on my hands. And so I think that like having all of this loss and processing it, it kind of, for me, put me right up against that like childhood fear of death where I'm like, okay, so what was that washing hands thing about? Like, it's like, And I I think that I was exhibiting elements that societally exist about death, which is that people think it's contagious. People think, you know, I don't want to talk about it. I mean, we knocked on wood. Yeah. So I think for me, it may have, I don't know, just made that a little more like right sized, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Like I, I think a lot about like my overwhelming fear about death and like this idea that like I should probably come to terms with it a bit more Mm -hmm. than I have or reconceptualize it or you know and sometimes these things kind of force us to do that yeah yeah I think I mean I think it has but yeah exactly like as as you were both saying that like you know that doesn't mean like and therefore it's a good thing that it happened like it just did right it just did it's like the this is my reality and where do I go Mm -hmm. from here Right. I also have OCD and, you know, and I think there's also, I don't know if it's connected to OCD, this idea of like ranking things or like, mm-hmm. did I want this? Which would I pick between the two? Yep. Like, would oh, I totally. pick this wow. reality? Would I pick that reality? And being yeah. able to be like, I don't have to. Yeah. I'm just living in the one that I'm living in. Wow. <laughs> right. Like, you know? Yeah. And, and, you know, honestly, for all of the fear of death that I've lived with my entire life, I never imagined this kind of thing happening, like stillbirth. And so it was interesting to me too, because like I've run through so many scenarios as you're describing, you know, from when I was a kid, like when we moved into, like we lived in an apartment when I was like first born and then we moved into a house and like, we didn't live in like a fancy building, but we lived in the suburbs in a building. And so there was a doorman and I was so scared because I'm like, well, where in a house is the doorman? Yeah. Right. And as a result, my coping mechanism was when my parents were like, okay, you, my brother was like very little. And so he couldn't talk yet or whatever. So like, just pick whatever room you want and Vic will get the other one. And I picked the smaller room because it was closer to the front door because I was like, listen, if there's not going to be a doorman here, whoever comes in is going to have to get through me first. And so, (laughs) so that's the level that like, I have always thought about you know, emergency and and tr- response stuff and whatever. And even I didn't consider this outcome. So like all of my running scenarios in my head didn't matter 
for this moment, which was educational too. Right. Oh my gosh. I, I want to talk to you for seven days straight. Yeah, totally. Well, thank you for sharing and validating and reflecting back your respective anxieties because it, it makes me feel less alone, truly. Uh, oh yes, we've got we've got quite a bit of them over here between yeah, the two I was of us. Say, <laughs> very true. Mm-hmm. <laughs> But yeah. now I, I have to ask if you'd like to play a very silly game show. Oh, fun. Great. <laughs> okay, good. So Hypotheticals is a show where you and Gabe are my contestants. I'm going to give you a series of hypothetical situations. You can ask as many clarifying questions as you'd like. And then you tell me what you would do with that situation. And I pick a winner. Great. So we're sort of feeding the anxiety by asking these what if questions. But Oh, well, it's for fun. I think I can handle it. Okay. <laughs> I just okay, yeah, put yeah, that yeah. together in my brain where I was like, uh-oh, Allison. I mean, <laughs> you're doing a... <laughs> if I pick the wrong one, who's to say what who's happens say? later? But yeah, <laughs> no, hopefully not. I'll just knock on wood and blow on my hands just in case. And, and in, in weird magical thinking, if we say these scenarios, then they probably won't happen. Right? Yes. Oh my God, yeah. I do that. <laughs> I know you do. Oh no. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so our first game is America's favorite game show. Would you stay with this cheater? You discover that your partner of 59 years has been paying a sex worker to pretend to be Princess Leia since the first Star Wars came out. They send letters and emails and even some photos, but the sex worker is always in character as Princess Leia. Would you stay with this cheater? Hold on, I'm Googling to find out how long ago. Okay, so Star Wars came out 46 years ago. Yeah. So we have been together 59 minus. So So they started 13 years years, in. Yeah, when they they saw Star Wars, thought I gotta have a relationship with Princess Leia. And it was never an in-person relationship. It was always a... Zoom. In 1977, <laughs> it was over Zoom, Allison. It wasn't over Zoom. It was like letters and photos right. and, and like a pen pal, sex, a, a sexy pen pal wow. in character as Princess Leia. And so we were 13 years in and they didn't feel like they could tell me about this. Right. That sucks. Yeah, it does. I mean, I don't think that I would stay. I think that if, for me, this is a hard out because... I, I don't know. That's a lot of lying. Yeah. Right. And, and my, my thought is like, there had to have been other barriers to the communication in those intervening, however many decades that prevented us us from having. Yeah, exactly. That's my thought. I'm out. Has it been the same woman and she's aged as Princess Leia? Yes. (laughs) So she's writing sort of like fanfic about what happens to Leia, like after a certain age. Kind of, but not change, you know, not changing it too much. Like mm-hmm. she's not like, oh, my back hurts. You know, she's keeping <laughs> it sexy. Well, that's hot. Yeah. <laughs> and are they communicating over like Skype and stuff now? Not really. More just like the emails and the phone, you know, like because this mm-hmm. woman is aged quite a bit. So she doesn't mm-hmm. really want to get in the outfits all the time. Mm hmm. Because of her back. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> how much money has, has, I'm saying he, how much money has he spent on this? It's like $10,000 a year. Oh, fuck like, that. Wow. Adjusted for inflation. So it was lower. Oh, I love but that, at this that point, Gabe, right. Yeah, that you're out with the money. You're spending money that's behind my back. Gabe, uh, that's a right. very Gabe response. No, fuck sure, that. Sure. If, if we're married, <laughs> yeah. 
I don't know. I believe people have a right to privacy in their relationships, blah, blah, blah. But mm-hmm. where mm-hmm. that 10K could have been going to, to other stuff. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Races, camp. Yeah. Liz mm-hmm. has children on her mind. She's like, <laughs> I was like vacations to Italy. Like, <laughs> fine leather goods. Like, what the sure. hell? Okay, I think the right answer is to leave, even though your partner is very confused because to them, they're like, why are you punishing me for my fantasy? Buy me a gift. Take $10,000, take a year off this lady and buy me a fucking present. (laughs) And then you'd say, sure. (laughs) (laughs) How much does a boat cost? What kind of boat? You you can't get a boat for 10K? I bet you could get Probably like, like rowboat. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It, no, it says popular. I just found an article: popular boats for under a thousand dollars. So. Oh. Okay. Wow. I didn't say I they did. were good. I said they were popular. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Our next game: Are you a terrible parent? I'm sure I am. Oh. <laughs> I'm sure I am. People have a strong reaction to this. But they say yes really? or no right off the bat. Yeah. yeah. Oh. Don't even have to ask say the question. Yes. <laughs> I just imagine at the very least for self-preservation, because you know the whole thinking of like somebody who's like a Donald Trump is like, I'm amazing at everything. Yeah, and I'm like, right. he's gross. So I'm just like, if I'm a terrible, whatever, yes, I will sign on to be a terrible, whatever, because at the very least, it's an insurance policy against me being actually terrible. Right. First of all, my baby's a month old. Like, how terrible could I be? But let me tell you, here's something that I do that I think is terrible is so we have this super duper high tech, like bassinet. Having children is like being on a constant episode of Shark Tank. Let me tell you, because (laughs) either you're getting input of like devices that are like, oh my God, that's the coolest thing or you're inventing them on your own. Right. Right. And like, there's so like the fact that we survived with as little tech is astounding based on how much it's like being in the Jetsons. Okay. Raising a kid right now. So so we have this thing. It's like a bassinet and it rocks your baby to sleep. basically. Oh, the snoo. The snoo. And it's super expensive, but we rent it. Yeah. So you can rent it, which, yeah. Anyway, so it has an app. And like, let me tell you at like 6, 18 a.m., when she's rustling and I'm like, this, you don't want to wake up till seven. Okay. Let me just be real with you. You think I don't put her on level one, you know, <laughs> go in the blender a little bit. Of course I do. Mm-hmm. And so that's, I'm like, I'm being a bad parent in that. Moment. <laughs> I don't think so. They need to sleep. I know, but it's like, you know, there it's, I'm not trying to be like a cry it out person yeah right right but like i kind of i'm because it's it's literally like the the same impulse as hitting snooze when i was (laughs) a (laughs) non-parent exactly is now just like level put around level one exactly level one is not a lot there's like four levels so we only go we've done level two but level two actually does feel like she's a smoothie yeah and so i'm like i don't think that's right but level one is fine. I mean, allegedly, yeah. they're all fine. Of course, I'm sure that's true. I'm sure it's like, I don't know. I put together a snoo for a baby one time. Did you? Yeah. And we put wow. the baby in it and we felt like her head was. <laughs> yeah. Like you're not well, supposed but, to but shake people, a baby. It felt like her neck right. was like going like this. Yeah. Yeah. So people do like talk about that on the Internet. Yeah. And then, you know, snoo comes in and they're like, we've tested it. It's the best, whatever. But the thing is that all of the tech from baby stuff changes so much over time. Like when we were babies, there was so many different rules. They put than there cigarettes are now. right in our mouths. <laughs> because it was good because for us. Good for and us. So, <laughs> but 
I, so I get, I get what you're saying and I agree. I'm like, I think that some of these levels, if I'm having a reaction about it now, it might be that in a decade, SNU are recalled because the levels are too high. You know, I wouldn't right? be shocked if that happened. But yeah. that's what's, that's what's hard about being a parent is you can't predict yeah. that stuff. Right, right. Yeah. No, it's it's pretty wild. But anyway. Well, let's hope that this scenario never happens to you. But if it did, what what would the verdict yep. be? Okay. Sure. Your child, 10, has gotten into the habit of taking two-hour baths every night. And it's really getting in the way of everyone's life. Mm. To get them off the habit, you replace their normal bubble bath with bubble bath that stinks like farts. Oh, no. Uh, when they complain, you say you don't smell anything different and they have to oh. use what they have. The bubble bath stinks so much like farts, they stop taking baths and start freaking out that something is wrong with their sense of smell. Are oh you God. a terrible parent? Yes. Yes. Uh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> that's like, that's like, oh, like, no matter what I do, I'm sure that my kid will be in therapy about something, right? And because everybody's like, oh, you're going to put your kid into therapy. I'm like, the kid will be in therapy. Right. Like, it's fine. Everyone but should. Like, <laughs> right. And I, I have that way, you know, whatever. I don't think that therapy is like a bad thing that people are in because something bad necessarily happened. Right. right. Whatever. But like in this instance, yeah. I, I think you would have to be like, well, I'm so perfect. I have to create a reason that... <laughs> Therapy is going to happen. And so now I have this fart bath situation. Here's okay? the problem is that in what scenario would I rather my bathroom smell like farts than be taken up by a child? Well, you have a, you have multiple bathrooms. No, I don't want any of my bathrooms smelling like farts. I agree. <laughs> zero. I want zero. I want zero bathrooms smelling like farts. Fair. All right. Well, that's pretty judgmental of your whoever you live with because sometimes people can't <laughs> yes. help it. I spray. I spray everything. Sure. I got I have right. a real problem because my boyfriend doesn't like the smell of spray, like cleaner things. Mm, but then no, I'm it. like, but I'm like, you got to do that because I'm sorry. Yeah. You, you're either going to cough on that. You're going to cough on the farts. And I'd rather you cough right. on the glade, honestly. <laughs> yeah. I love a fabuloso. Ooh. That's my fave smell. I don't know that. Oh, it's a cleaning thing. I'm sure it's like full of cancer, <laughs> oh, yeah. but like it smells delish. And wow. Yeah. I mean, it. I first learned of it when I lived in Brooklyn and it was like the available cleaner at the local, you know, bodega and, but it, it's, I feel like when you smell it, you're like, oh, I've smelled, I've mm -hmm. smelled this yeah. before. My grad school bathroom is like has like mm -hmm. a something in the outlet, like one of those fake chemical uh, smells. Oh, yeah. And every time I go in, I'm like, I love this. I'm like, I know <laughs> I shouldn't love this, but this smells yeah. lovely to me. Yeah. Like my OCD is like chemicals. Bring them on. Chemicals right. kill germs. Right, <laughs> right, right. Totally. I share that. Whereas some other people will be like, but aren't you afraid of the chemicals? And I'm like, I love chemicals. I bathe right. in chemicals. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Okay. Our final game. Would yes. you forgive this liar? Okay. Mm. Your grandfather has always told you a story 
about a time where he rescued a baby from a burning building and became a local hero in his town. Okay. Mm. You even looked it up and saw it in an old timey newspaper. Okay. At the age of 93, your grandparents get divorced and your grandma tells you that your grandfather never saved anyone. There was just another guy in their town with the same name who saved the baby. Would you forgive this liar? I mean, I would because forgiving my dead grandfather, or even if he weren't He's dead, still alive. I feel like, okay, fine. It, to me, that's low stakes. Like, it's not like taking this person back and having a relationship with them. Mm. And so for that reason, I'm just like, the forgiveness is more about me letting go of anger than it is anything else, in which case I'm kind of like, for the sake of my own letting go of things and not like promoting disease Mm -hmm. in my own body, I'm going to say yes. But if this happened and it was like the first scenario where it's a romantic partner, significant other, then it would be a no for me. Okay, I'm sorry. Why did he lie? (laughs) Because people love to look like a hero. And, you know, he had this newspaper article that said his full name in his town as Mm -hmm. a hero. And he like he just like was lied about and shared it with friends and family throughout the years as if he had done this. Sure. Have you guys ever heard of the the murder case where there was like some I'm not going to get the name right, but there was like someone two people in a small town, both named like Margaret Smith. And then one of the Margaret Smiths got like assassinated, like it was like a, a hit. And people were like, this uh-huh. is so weird. She didn't have any enemies or whatever. And they think it was like a assassin who found the oh, wrong Margaret so Smith. Wild. And so then he went in. Then the other Margaret Smith was killed like a day later. And it <gasps> must have been that this guy like was meant to get the other Margaret Smith, but accidentally right. got the wrong one and then had to go correct it. But they've never solved it. I don't think. That is wow. wild. That- I, I have uh, my one story on this is my name, Liz Glazer. There are two other Liz Glazers. One died of AIDS in when I was in high school. She like infamously had a blood transfusion and like that caused her to die of AIDS. And I walk into high school the next morning after her death had been on the news. And my health teacher was like, oh my God, you're okay. And I was like, (gasps) what? And she's like, you know, says, oh, well, Elizabeth Glazer died, whatever. And I thought that was like, I mean, it's very sad, obviously, but I was like, so first of all, you like turned on the news. We're like, oh, my, oh my God. high school student is on the news for dying. And also then you're like, I bet, I bet it's fine. And just like went to sleep. And the next morning we're like, <laughs> oh, you're fine. The second is there's a Liz Glazer, Elizabeth Glazer, whatever, who has, she's also a lawyer. I used to be one. And at the time that I still was one, we both were, oh, right? Man. And she gets appointed she gets appointed to some thing in the mayor's office or something that was on the cover of the New York Law Journal. Oh, and the whole article was about her. And, you know, I mean, she just got a new position. Like, it wasn't like anything bad happened or whatever. But anyway, so she, it's a whole article about her and my picture. <gasps> and let no! me tell you, the the emails that I got with like, hey, I just wanted to like send you my resume just in case you're hiring. And I was like, this is hilarious. And now I know that you want to leave work, which like, who cares? Everybody does want to leave whatever work. But it, it's just like hilarious that, you know, I mean, thankfully, in my instance, you should have taken the job as a person. <laughs> right. How do they prove exactly. it? They can't prove shit. Yeah. Sure, sure. So anyway, but but that's super unfortunate for Margaret Smith or whoever that 
had been. This is Mary Morris. I looked it up. Mary Morris. Two women named Mary Morris in 2000, both killed in their cars three days apart. Wow. Yeah. That's wild. I did not know about that. Yeah. No motive. No, they haven't found the guy who did it. And there's, it's like, yeah, it was like a hit that clearly went wrong. I feel like if you were to make that into a fictionalized whatever, like we would want as an audience, I think, to have the first one have like deep seated, terrible tendencies. Like she should be like a cannibal or something. (laughs) And it just happened that like the guy who murdered her ended up like writing the world. Like she's effectively like the Hitler who you could go back and kill. (laughs) Such that we feel better about the fact that she was hit accidentally. But like in reality, she was probably a very lovely person and that sucks. Yeah. Both of them. That's why you should give your kid a very, a distinctive name. Yeah. <laughs> very true. So, so an assassin doesn't get confused. Yeah. <laughs> My new film script, The Confused Assassin. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Oh, where can people find you, follow you and, and catch your album? Yeah, well, please don't follow me if you're trying to get to the other Elizabeth Blazers. (laughs) We'll say that first. Um, But secondly, and more seriously, uh, and also funnily, because you can find me in doing comedy on videos on YouTube and such, everything is on you know, just look for my name, Liz Glazer. And if you find the other Liz Glazers, then you could be like, oh, now I know why. But my website is www.dearlizglazer, D-E-A-R-L-I-Z-G-L-A-Z-E-R, dearlizglazer.com. And all of my socials are at Liz Glazer. My Twitter was hacked. And so if you see me like tweeting about crypto and whatever, once an hour, know that if it were actually me, I'd tweet about those topics like max once a day. Um, no, <laughs> seriously, not at all. And but it, it's, it's right. Exactly. Wow. It's not me. Mm-hmm. Oh, thank, thank you, you so, so much. much. Stick around after the break. We'll be talking all about risk. Oof, the board game. No. <laughs> <laughs> Just between us, it's time for topics. X X X X X X X. Baby, baby, baby. Wow, really giving nooch. What's that? Neutral. Oh, neutral. Yeah, oh. <laughs> I haven't heard nooch before either. Yeah, I'd never heard that. You never heard nooch before? No. no, might be gay slang. I think I took it from Willem, who's a drag queen, but I don't know where <laughs> Willem got it. So, nooch. Yeah, what made you choose risk? I chose risk because of that submersible at horrible accident. Oh, Jesus Christ. <laughs> Where, <laughs> Jesus Christ, Allison. <laughs> I know. Well, we don't need to talk about it, but it does raise this interesting thing where these people chose to go that deep underwater in like not that secure of a vessel. And not they that have, secure of. <laughs> well, I think Jesus. they thought it was more secure than it was. <sighs> but like, you know, there like there's some people, right, who would never do that. Like, no matter what, you would never do that because the risk is too high. And then there are obviously people that like the risk is worth it. Mm-hmm. And so it just sort of made me think about like risk in general and like our own tolerance for it. It's funny because it's like physically risky, emotionally risky and financially risky both came to my head. Right. So like, oh, yeah. So like financially risky, this movie, maybe emotion that I want to do emotionally risky is like 
being vulnerable with someone, telling telling Alex the real reason I'm upset, right? And then physically risky is like, I'm going to climb Everest and I have no experience. Or you could have a ton of experience and just climbing Everest in any scenario is risky. Right, exactly. So like, I think my tolerance for physical risk is maybe a little higher than the average person. I oh, think, really? Yeah, because I'm not that worried about cleanliness or like I don't freak out if like I'm like this water probably isn't good or like I'm just not like <laughs> I'm not like super concerned about like my physical body. <laughs> and then emotional risk, absolutely no tolerance for it. Devastated. Can't intimacy, horrible. And then financial risk, it fluctuates. Do you huh. feel like you take risks, Allison? I think I can take huge emotional risks. Wow. I think that that's easiest for me. Wow. And then I don't take financial risks. Like I gambling makes me really uncomfortable. I don't like even having my money in the stock market because it wow. freaks me out. Like I had to like be like convinced to get a credit card because I was so afraid I'd forget to pay it that I'd go to jail. <laughs> But emotional risks, happy you take an emotional risk. Physical risks, I think I'm all, I think very low. Like I, but I also like, I don't enjoy being afraid in my body. Mm. Like I don't like get off on like a roller coaster or like doing something that's like so high up that it's like dangerous. Like I, it doesn't bring me joy. So it's like not that hard for me to like not be risky about it. You don't like adrenaline? Like to me, adrenaline is like, Going to a Blickolite <laughs> concert or seeing a Broadway musical. I get really excited. Like John has a much higher physical risk. Like he's traveled some places that I think I, I wouldn't like not feel comfortable traveling or like doing things like, but then like risky in terms of like, oh, like I took this career that's pretty risky, right? Mm -hmm, like, so mm -hmm. I guess I have more tolerance than a person who like, but also I had my parents as a, as a, safety net. Like, I don't know if I would have gone into this career if I didn't have my parents as a safety net. It's impossible to say. Do you think that risk is tied together now? It's occurring to me with delusion. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think, Melissa? I think financial risks. I'm, I'm just like, things will work themselves out. Like, I'm fine with it. It doesn't bother me. Emotionally, I don't, let's let's start with physical. Uh -huh. Physical, I'm like I don't like watching scary movies. Really? I like the way that oh, right. Makes me feel. I hate scary movies. I don't like roller coasters. But I used to like roller coasters until one time when I was like nine and I was in one and I was telling the people that my harness wasn't tight enough <gasps> and they're like they came by and jiggled and they're like it's fine and as we were going through the first loop I felt it click back <gasps> and I was like it wasn't. <laughs> So ever since then, I'm like, no. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, my God. Yeah. So like, I feel like what, that's, where were you? What? Where were you? I think it was it was a, I know it was a six, a six Flags. It was like the Superman, right? But I can't remember if it was in I've Atlanta. Been so many six Flags. No, there's they're everywhere, though. I don't remember if it was. It was in Atlanta. They have Superman ride either, everywhere at every six. Flags? Yeah, it would have either been St. Louis or Houston. And I don't remember which one it was. Wow. I hate flying on planes, but I like the destination once I get there. Like, I'm fine, like solo traveling and stuff. Mm -hmm. So it's just, it's just, it's situational, you know? But what about, okay, but then you couldn't even discuss emotional risk. No, I just wanted to get to the physical one first because emotional risk, I'm like, whatever. What do you mean, whatever? Yeah, I'm just like, whatever. That, that doesn't answer like, the question. Like, you'll take them, they're no problem yeah. for you. 
I, I mean, it just depends on the situation, but whatever. That is not an answer, Melissa. That is an answer. No, it, it isn't. It's the same as my financial answer. I'm like, whatever, it'll work itself out. It's the exact same answer. Okay, but for emotional risk, you have to like have intimacy with people and like share things and like be willing to like look stupid. Okay. And what? And your <laughs> thing is that never happens to me. I never look stupid. I'm perfect. Yeah. See, what is this? She has like (laughs) no problems with confidence. It's ridiculous. Yeah. That's why I'm like, it can't be real. But I've never seen a crack. Well, here I am. I don't know what to tell you. Other than you are scared of needles. Yeah, I am scared of needles. That's physical, though. Yeah. But that's because it's like the 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 outcome of it. I'm fine. But you do. You did ask for help like you did. Mm -hmm. So that was vulnerable. So there are cracks. Hmm. Yeah, but I didn't feel stupid asking. That is, wow. So then you have a high tolerance, I guess. I I feel like uncomfortable asking for help. I Just anything that I feel, I feel deeply unsafe emotionally almost at all times. Yeah, but like you're still in a relationship. Like, so I would say like if you had yeah. a actually like very low tolerance for emotional risk, after your broken engagement, you wouldn't have stayed in a relationship with Alex, right? Like you would have That's been true. like, oh, I got very hurt. And therefore, I don't want to be hurt again. And therefore, I'm not going to date anymore. Right. Or I'm only going to have casual relationships. That to me is like what someone who has like no tolerance mm. for emotional risk looks like. That They close themselves off. They don't even let themselves be that close to anyone because then there's the possibility of getting hurt. And you don't do that. No, I think I've become even better at it with Alex. I think I've become mm-hmm. even better at like vulnerability and intimacy. And it's funny because he listens to this show every week and he was like, you always talk about yourself like you're not a good boyfriend, but you're a really good boyfriend. He was like, you say on the show that like you talk about like all these silly things, but like you're actually a really good boyfriend and people should know that. Oh, <laughs> that's so that's sweet. sweet. I know it's really sweet. So I guess like I have gotten much better at it. Yeah. I mean, I guess it's like that thing of like, you know, like if someone offered you $500 million to fight to the death, like and you and it was someone you thought you could probably be. Would you take that? 100%. You know, like there are people that like would be like, absolutely. Yeah. Or like yeah. To, not maybe not fight to a, a human, but like you have to fight a bear or something like something, oh. you know, people are like the risk is worth it. Like I'd be no. like, no way. Not <laughs> with a bear. Or like you have to jump off this huge building and there's like 50, yes. 50 chance. Yeah. Something like that. Like there are people that would definitely take that. And I'm not one of them. I would have to like, I, I, I'm the type of person who I would hem and haw for like an hour and then I would just in, in one second impulsively do it. You know what I mean? Mm. Like I'm the person mm-hmm. who like I, I would have to have thrown myself off the building before I even realized I'd done it. <laughs> be like, push me. Push you? Oh my God, no, do not push me. I'll be yeah. so pissed if I for make it money? back. <laughs> I'm talking about for myself. Yeah, for uh, money. I'm trying to think of, because I literally, quite literally told y'all earlier today that I was lying in bed thinking about why can't I just have five hundred million dollars? I know. <laughs> I know. I'm even like I'm nervous about financial risks because I think they've evenly paid off and not paid off. I would say yeah. there's been a lot of really stupid ones that didn't work, but it's like here's my thing with with moving forward in life is that you can either just stay where you are and do nothing. Or you can move forward and get in that relationship or make that movie or change your life in a certain way or transition, Lord knows, for me or whatever it is. Because otherwise, life is just happening around you. 
Yeah. Like you have to take risks and do do different things and change things because otherwise, why are we here? You only get one life. Why are we on this planet? I I was yesterday thinking about why am I here? Like, right. does any of this actually matter? Right. It doesn't. So may as well do what you want. Yeah. Because <laughs> I could have stayed in Arkansas and worked at like Walmart or Tyson corporate by now, probably making like 300K a year comfortably and just yeah. chilling. Like, right. had a, a, a huge house. Like, it could have been fine. Right. But that's not what I wanted. I just was like, I'm leaving. I told everybody nobody believed me till I was packing the car and I was gone. Yeah. You know, I looked in my journal from like a year ago and it was like I was writing like what I want from a relationship. And then I like looked at it and I was like, oh, my God, like I went out and I have that. Like I did it. Like Alex was saying, like, if I direct my movie in November, it will be a year since my broken engagement. And it's like, he was like, I'm so proud of you. Like, look at everything that's changed. My list of what I wanted in a relationship is like happening now in a way that I like in the past wrote like, oh, I would, that'll never happen. That's great. I know. Isn't that crazy? But that's because like you got to go through a lot of hard shit first. Like what if someone was like, I have this time machine. I'm, I'm 75% sure it'll work. 25% sure it'll blow you up. Would you do it? Where would I to go? Do what? Yeah, where, where? Just to be able to time travel. To where? Like in the past? Wherever you want. You can also go to the future. Okay, because I'm not probably going to the past. Go to the past. <laughs> the future probably is not that good either. <laughs> I tell them, I, I time travel to the future. They've fully put together the trans concentration camps. I'm like, I actually am going to go back. I'm actually going to go back. I'm not getting in a time machine because I just don't, I don't think I'm meant to be there. Okay, what about a, a, one of those things where you, you can go from New York to L.A. in one second, like in Star Trek? Ooh, cool. you know what? Star Trek, it is a risk. There was uh, an episode of um, Voyager where there's an accident in the teleporter and two people and get fused together. People disappear like there's like um, it is a, every time they do it, it is a risk. But they just never really talk about it because they're so used to it. Kind of like when we go in I cars. Mean, any- I was going to say, right. anytime we get in a car, there's a risk. Right. Yeah. So we're all dealing with risk all the time. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what do you guys rate this episode? I will rate it 92 out of 64 rabbinical sermons. Mm. I will rate it 17 out of 5 emails. I will rate it 50 out of 20 Y'all both made my head hurt doing international questions. <laughs> because we were disagreeing? Why? No, I don't know where. I, that's the thing is, I was like, I don't know. I don't like y'all were both making good points. And I'm like, I don't know. Wow. I don't know. I was just going back Thanks. and forth. Oh, on, be, on who you agreed with? Yeah. And then I was like, I absolutely do not agree with this point or this wow. point. Like it was just a ping pong tournament. Ooh. Well, thank you to Liz Glazer for being our guest. Just Between Us is a Forever Dog production hosted by me, Allison Raskin. And me, Gabe Dunn. Produced by Melissa Diamond Monts. Edited by Coco Lorenz. Executive produced by Brett Boehm, Joe Cilio, and Alex Ramsey. Brendan Burns composed our killer theme music. To listen to this podcast ad-free, sign up for Forever Dog Plus at foreverdogpodcast.com slash plus. 
And make sure to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Forever Dog Team to keep up with all the latest Forever Dog news. Also, you can follow this podcast at Just Between Us Pod on TikTok and at JBU Podcast on Instagram. Also, I'm on Instagram now at Gabe S. Dunn. And I'm on Instagram and Twitter at Allison Raskin. And on TikTok at, at Allison Raskin Baby. And I'm on TikTok as Dabby Gun. So branding's going really well over here. Yeah, good luck finding us. Forever. Yeah.